to the Reedwood Friends Church at 2901 Southeast Steel Street in Portland. Doors at 7, concert 7.30 p.m. Cowboy poet Tom Swearingen will open, and the Portland Folk Music Society Concert Committee will announce the 2019-20 season. For more information, go to kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Sweetgrass County Line Down where the Everstone blows Sunlit This is KBOO Portland Community Radio What would you have instead? Uh, ah, no, this is it. Good morning, good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland, your community radio station. I'm Ani, and this is Positively Revolting. It's about three minutes after the hour of 8 o'clock this morning. I hope your morning is off to a good start. We here at KBOO, well, it's an interesting morning, isn't it? So today's topic, we'll be talking about uh, the restrictions to uh, abortion access and the restrictive legislation that is uh, coming into being uh, across the land. And to have that discussion with me, I am very happy to say that uh, Grayson Dempsey, the executive director of NARAL, is here uh, in the studio. Thank you so much, Grayson, for being here this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So we only have an hour. (laughs) And (laughs) this is a topic that is so critical. Uh, Let's just jump straight into it. I'm going to start off by saying something that my listeners have heard over the years, and that is, you know, there is absolutely no equivocation on my behalf that um, that babies are, are, you know, fetuses are not babies. Uh, Women are not incubators, and that abortion must be readily available on demand without apology. It is a medical procedure. That is exactly what it is. It is an important and necessary medical procedure for some women. And uh, and that's where that's that's my that's my stand on it. And 
because that's my stand on it, I'm very thankful to organizations like NARAL. Uh, so, Grayson, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Let's start off talking about uh, the different restrictive legislations that are coming into being. So we know we have just seen uh, the governor of Alabama sign that law into, or that, that bill into law. Uh, do you want to talk about the Alabama bill and what sets that apart? Why yeah. is this such a big deal? Yeah, I mean, it's people are really freaked out and afraid about the Alabama bill, as they should be. Um, we know that um, the laws that have been passing across the country have been banning abortion as early as six weeks, which is before most women even know that they're pregnant. We see those as incredibly extreme. We know that those laws have been designed to be unconstitutional. Um, the Alabama um, law, I mean, what I think is interesting is that those six-week bans a few years ago were seen as really extreme. We thought that those seemed, you know, it, it was crazy to think that something like that would even pass and that people would think it was reasonable to sign those into law. Um, we know that the anti-abortion movement has been incredibly emboldened um, since Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court last fall. And so since January, we've really seen a slew of these six-week bills coming through states to the point where they seem really normal, which is the scary thing about how we start to lose our rights. You know, we things that seemed unthinkable just a few years ago now seem like the new norm. And so Alabama felt like because these six-week bans were becoming so normalized that they needed to take the next step and go a little bit further and do something even more extreme and more un unconstitutional, knowing that all of these lawmakers are, are very transparently and outwardly saying that they are in a race to see which case can make it to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. So this law in Alabama is is more extreme because it outlaws abortion entirely. Um, it um, includes a uh, felony charge for anybody who would provide abortion. So abortion doctors would be put in jail. Um, it defines the fetus as a separate person, meaning that um, a woman who sought abortion could potentially be punished, which we know has been a goal of the Trump administration. Um, and it doesn't include any, any exceptions for rape and incest. I was just listening this morning um, to the New York Times news show, The Daily, and the creators of this bill were saying that it was important that they not include exceptions for rape and incest because they really wanted to make the point that the fetus was a separate person no matter how a woman got pregnant. And we've heard really, I mean, horrific things from the lawmakers in Georgia. One of the ones that um, hit me the most yesterday was a quote where one of the lawmakers was saying um, that they felt like uh, pregnancy as a result of rape was like God's silver lining for women. Right. Um, and so we know that we're dealing with people who have absolutely no compassion for women who really are on a on a on a race to punish and harm women and really don't care about the collateral damage um, of what it means to ban safe and legal abortion which is why this is terrifying yeah I would say absolutely terrifying and certainly in cases uh, you know we've heard legislators say such reprehensible things in the past and yet you know I wonder how many of them would identify themselves as bringing on the theocracy yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, I think that it's, you know, when you listen to people who really believe that that outlawing abortion is is the right solution, um, what strikes me is that there's no, I think, reality check on the fact that women have been having abortion since the beginning of time. So really what we are litigating is whether or not women will have safe abortions or whether they will have to seek out unsafe abortions. And and also who gets to have abortions, right? Women of privilege mm -hmm. who can travel, who may be able to have those resources and find those networks of providers who um, are willing to um, offer them those services are one thing. Um, the, the people who are always harmed most are always low-income women, women of color, rural women, young women, um, women with very little resources. Mm -hmm. and And frankly, I don't... I don't know that they that women in general are really a consideration in any of these laws. The idea that women will be harmed or or um, or will die is I is I've made that argument to people who are anti-abortion. I have looked them in the eyes and said that, and and I have never seen any sort of recognition that that's important. Yeah, uh, likewise. Um, and to me, I find that really just chilling. Uh, that you know, and I don't think that they forget about the women in the equation. I think that there's active contempt, absolutely, uh, to control women and to uh, you know, after all, original sin, yada yada. Uh, you know, and again, uh, it is really about bringing on the theocracy, and I want to make no mistake about that. Um, so, 
I also want to so, so that's at the most horrific end of things right we, we, we see Alabama other states that are going through the motions that also have legislation uh, ready I know Georgia uh, we were talking just before the show and there was a long list mm-hmm. yeah how, how many states are, are entertaining restrictive laws right now um, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm losing count, honestly. Yeah, um, right. I, at my best recollection, there's five states that have outlawed that have passed these bans on abortion. Um, we know that on Wednesday, um, the governor of Alabama signed the um, ban on abortion in in her state. And then when we woke up on Thursday morning, the Missouri Senate had passed a ban on abortions as of eight weeks at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so while we were all sleeping, um, we woke up to another ban that mm. had just passed a state Senate. Um, so there, we really are see the, seeing the dominoes falling really quickly. And I guess I want to make a point, which is that, you know, the Alabama law is, is, is terrifying. Um, it's horrific. Um, I... I am so glad that people are paying attention to this and that people are really um, activated and energized. Um, There has been a lot to be activated and energized around in the last six months, but even in the last several years. And so with this race to overturn and gut Roe, um, it is really, you know, it's possible that that could happen. The math on the Supreme Court is not in our favor. The other thing that's been happening, though, for for the last decade plus is that states have been passing what seem like sensible restrictions on abortion. um, And those have, in effect, made a lot of women in this country already live as if they're in a post-Roe reality. And people have not had the same level of outrage. And I think that what's really important is to know that Roe could be toppled by one of these abortion bans or it could, I said this yesterday, it could die by a thousand paper cuts, right? right? And so Planned Parenthood versus Casey was a Supreme Court decision in 1992 that was sort of a win for both sides. It reaffirmed Roe versus Wade, but it also allowed states to regulate abortion as long as it didn't cause what was sort of this murky term of undue burden. And that really opens the door for states to start passing laws that for example, would um, say that abortion clinics had to be built as ambulatory surge centers, that they had to have doctors on call with admitting privileges, that women had to go through mandatory counseling that was um, dictated by the state and often very anti-abortion. Um, there would be 24 to 48 hour waiting periods. There would be no Medicaid coverage for abortion. Mm-hmm. There would be um, necessitated um, cremation for fetal remains. There, I mean, just you know, parental consent laws like spousal consent laws, all of these things that were really made to make it so that women, once they find, I mean, most women, when they find out they're pregnant, if they know that they want abortion care, are really eager to get it as quickly as possible. But we know that the financial barriers, the geographic barriers, I mean, if you're traveling from 300 miles away to get to a clinic, need to take time off work, find childcare for a service that you often can't tell anybody about or don't feel like you can talk about, you get to a clinic, you have to have a 48-hour waiting period. Maybe the doctor only comes to that clinic once a week. So you have to get there on a Monday. The doctor's there on Wednesday. I've heard stories where, you know, in places like North Dakota or South Dakota where an ice storm prevents you from getting there that Monday. So mm-hmm. now it's another week. And maybe the cost has gone up and you can't get those days off work. I mean, so we really, you know, we, we live in this sort of fantasy yeah. notion in America that abortion is legal and readily accessible for everybody. And it's already not. And so these kinds of bans are so extreme. But in some ways, it's turning our attention to the fact of how fragile and tenuous our right to abortion already has been. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you talked about the Casey decision. There was the Webster decision. There has been all of these uh, decisions that have restricted our mm-hmm. access, right? And uh, and I think that, that that death of a thousand paper cuts is, is really, that was the way we were sort of watching it go. Right. And uh, so now we have this thing that shocks Right, and hopefully motivates uh, people to take right action. And you know, let's look at uh, let's look at actually getting together and fighting back. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some things that people um, can do at yeah. this stage to say, "Oh no, in fact, uh, abortion safe and legal—that's a medical procedure, and we want to safeguard that." What can people do? 
So I have a lot of ideas about that. I mean, one of the things to know is that the Supreme Court, the makeup of the Supreme Court and the way that it is, and I don't mean to be such a downer on a Friday morning, but I mean, the Supreme Court is going to look like how it does for another generation. And we hope it doesn't get any worse. We hope that we um, can have a change of administration next year that um, and and not lose any um, and any of our judges that support abortion rights. Um, but the Supreme Court is, is, is hard because that's not a place we can make change. Where we can make change is in our, is in who we vote for at the local, state, federal, presidential level. Um, so we did see in Alabama, we had a huge victory in 2017 when Doug Jones, who was the first pro-choice Democrat to be elected um, to the Senate from Alabama in decades, won his race, was pro-choice. Um, we know that the people of Alabama um, care about this issue, right? And um, we know that the people of Ohio care about this issue. We know that in Missouri, they care about this issue. Um, people need to vote on this issue as if their lives depended on it. So um, people need to turn out in those states in particular and vote people out of office who are sponsoring this kind of legislation. And the one of the reasons that we are, that the anti-abortion movement is so active right now is not only this promise that if they get to the Supreme Court, they think they'll have a good outcome, but is that they know this is an issue that mobilizes their base in a, in in a head, you know to get ahead of 2020 so they are passing these bills as a way to show their base that they see them that they appreciate them you know electing them to office and that they will do i mean there's often these bills that really aren't going to have any traction we know that in alabama um there this bill is going to be tied up yeah. this law is going to be tied up in courts for a long time right but this is a way that they can give that, um, sec you know, security to their base that they that they're doing this work. So our side really needs to do the same. We need to hold our elected officials and our candidates accountable. Um, I think that in 2016, one of the things that we saw that was really inspiring to me was the way that Hillary Clinton, as a candidate, talked about abortion. Um, you know, which was a, a long way from 20 years before when her husband had talked about it as safe, legal, and rare. She talked about having compassion for women who needed abortions later in pregnancy. She talked about repealing the Hyde Amendment. All of that came about because activists had said these are things that are important to me, and we're going to vote on these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and then here in Oregon, where, you know, so Oregon is a state where we have, we're the only state in the nation where we have no additional legislative barriers to abortion. Um, and we're really proud of that. And that hasn't happened by accident. NARAL Pro-Choice Oregon has been around for 42 years. We have been mobilizing voters. We have been holding elected officials accountable. And our elected officials in Oregon know that they need to hold the line on abortion rights, that we have an opportunity to push forward and address disparities in access to reproductive health care, and that if they started to change their votes, if we started to have anti-abortion votes happening in the legislature, that our activist community would be on that in a, you know, in a, in a second. And so um, we are, you know, this year in, in Oregon, 12 anti-abortion bills were introduced in the legislature. <clears throat> People say, oh, well, they're not going to go anywhere. And they're not going to go anywhere because we have pro-choice advocates and elected officials making sure they don't go anywhere. So I really think it's important to remember that um, we need to support the states in which we have to do defense. But in states like ours, where we are able to sort of play offense, um, we can never let that slip away and right. we have to be constantly vigilant. And it's easy to sort of rest on our laurels in Oregon, right? Um, but that we need to remember that um, that Alabama, the things that are happening in Alabama and Missouri, they were not as extreme 20 years ago. And this is a result of the anti-abortion movement being really effective in those states. Well, I want to give listeners a chance to call in with your questions, with your comments, with your abortion stories. Uh, it's, I think, a really important time to speak out and to speak out loudly. So please do call in with uh, your questions and comments at 503-231-8187. That's 503 503- Two three one eight one eight seven. I'm Ani, and this is Positively Revolting. You're listening to KBOO, your community radio station. Today, my guest is Grayson Dempsey, and she is the executive director of NARAL. Uh, we are talking about access to abortion, and I also want to remind you that you can uh, follow along throughout the week. You can like the Positively Revolting page on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Positively Revolting. And also, you can follow us in the Twitterverse, at Positive Revolt. Coming up at 9 o'clock will be Veterans Voice, a program looking at the lingering health effects of uh, the military and being involved therein. At 10.30, we'll be having film at 11. You'll want to stay tuned for so much information programming here on KBOO. And at noon, of course, we go to Moving On, and you can enjoy some music, too. 
uh, full spectrum sort of program here on your community radio station, uh, please do give us a call, 503-231-8187. So, uh, Grayson, you know, with all of this, you were talking about uh, how hard it is in some states for women to to actually access abortion, even now. And I want to break that down because this has been true even in Oregon, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely, uh, you know, for for a long time. So Oregon, who has you know no restrictive laws, still has uh, a heck of a time with access, and that is because of the number of uh, abortion providers in many cases. Uh, it is because of funding resources in some cases. Uh, but I just, you know, uh, for listeners, long-time listeners, you probably have heard me talk about working at the Feminist Women's Health Center where we provided abortion services as well as other health services. And in talking to uh, to women who were coming in for a procedure that might take a couple of visits uh, and knowing that they would have to be around Portland for a few days and maybe they were coming in from Eastern Oregon mm-hmm. and knowing that they could not be upfront with their family. And hearing the hardship of these women uh, needing in some cases sleeping in their cars uh, in some cases getting uh, you know the cheapest hotel room they could find and coming up with stories to cover because mm-hmm. they just couldn't you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, that in the you know looking back in what is the most liberal state when it comes to abortion laws and access and knowing that that hardship was a reality for many women 20 years ago holy bejeebies yeah right uh so in listening to democracy now this morning hearing that there were two abortion providers in alabama Mm -hmm. uh you know and um and we were listening to uh to one of those uh, abortion providers, Dr. Yashika Robinson, being interviewed by Amy Goodman, and you know the stories that she was telling as an abortion provider in Alabama, you know, absolutely uh, uh, heart wrenching, right? And so, again, just to to unpack that because I think a lot of people are under that that notion. Oh, so you might have to jump through a hoop or two, yeah. But what does it mean when you have uh, a 72-hour, you know, wait? What does it mean when you have to, you know, have consent from somebody else? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for women? I mean, what it means is that, again, um, women are delayed in their care. And so, you know, these uh, lawmakers who talk about um, wanting to prevent abortions later in pregnancy, the hypocrisy when they are passing bills that are making it so hard for women to be able to get abortion services when they need them um, is really apparent. Um, so women, you know, end up with later care. They end up going into debt or into poverty. We know that here in America, most families couldn't afford a $400 unexpected expense. Um, abortion procedures can cost um, about that at a minimum, can go up into thousands if you're talking about later um, uh, later gestation um, and talking about travel, hotel, gas money, you know, all of the things, childcare. Um, it also means that the people who, again, are most impacted um, are, are low-income women, are rural women, are women of color, are women who have barriers such as language barriers or women who have children. I mean, we know that 60% of women who have abortions are already mothers. And so the idea of finding childcare if you do need to go out of town for a couple of days, I mean, the barriers are really, are really real. And um, I do think that you know, here in Oregon, we have pa- we have really focused as a pro-choice state in the last couple of years on, again, filling in those gaps um, so that reproductive health is a reality for all people and not just a, prom- a sort of a political promise. Um, in 2017, we passed the Reproductive Health Equity Act, um, which um, expanded private health insurance to cover all reproductive health services, including abortion at no cost. And that was regardless of gender identity, immigration status, um, income, zip code. Um, so that um, made sure that at least the financial barrier for women who were covered by private insurance was not there for paying the, for the procedure. Of course, that doesn't cover transportation and all those things. In 2018, we had the first time, we had abortion on the ballot for the first time in Oregon in 12 years, and that was an attempt to mm-hmm. take away funding from women who were covered by Medicaid, as well as um, pri- uh, public sector employees who were uh, covered by the state. Um, we defeated that. We were the top vote getter in the state. 
Um, and so women who are covered by state-funded health insurance still have access to abortion. So at least here in Oregon, we are working on making the cost of abortion not be a barrier. I will say that there's incredible work being done by groups like the Northwest Abortion Access Fund, who also fund, who offer funding to women who fall through the cracks. Um, some of the women who still fall through the cracks on those promises are women who are covered by federal Medicare, so women on disability, um, women who are incarcerated often still face um, financial barriers, um, and women, again, who may be traveling from Idaho or Alaska, other places, um, and really what's going to make the difference between them getting care or not is that one night of a hotel room. And so offering the funding to sort of piece together so that um, uh, women women don't have to go into debt and don't have to jeopardize their financial security is really important. So I give a big shout out to them. That's huge, yeah. Uh, we were lucky enough to talk to uh, some folks from the uh, from the Access Fund a few months ago, maybe about three months ago now. Nice. Um, yeah, again, such an important issue. You are listening to KBU, your community radio station, 503-231-8187 is the number to call to join us on the air, just like Suzanne has done. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. <coughs> uh, I'm going to say uh, two other areas cause, because of the, the great power of religion. And we know which religions they are, uh, where they look down and they uh, actually vilify uh, a woman that get, you know gets pregnant without a husband. And uh, I never hear discussions about that. The power of these religions, and it does make the, the teenage girls. I worked work for a while, Marion County uh, uh, Health thing for, for women and my gosh we had so many uh, pregnant females uh, that would come in uh, and uh, I wanted to get a, you know a refill on uh, birth control stuff oh well my boyfriend just let me off but he didn't have any money for me to pay for uh, birth control so here I am pregnant and uh, the the powerlessness that especially poor women have at the heel of the church and the heel of the men who have sex with them, whether they want to or not. So we need to broaden ourselves a lot. And I found I, I was a licensed psychotherapist for a number of years, and the whole sub subject of sex was the most difficult subject that my women mm. clients had to talk about mm. because there are far too many players in oh this is you know yes or no type of thing right. so hey, Suzanne, thank you so much for your call this morning yes yes and re re seeing the those young girls having to uh you know walk or Anyway, thank you, ladies. Thank you. But we need to open our hearts and have some places where women can discuss freely, who am I? Mm -hmm. What do I want to be? Mm -hmm. What are my dreams? I don't see any of these women taking any science. I see them dropping out of school early. Yep. Okay. Thank they you. Suzanne, job. thank you so thank much. You. So I think that Suzanne made a really excellent point, which is that these laws are not just about um, banning abortion. They really are about um, keeping women in their place and that place being um, that these lawmakers envision a place where women are not, um, you know, don't have a seat at the table, are not running for office, are not graduating from college, are not pursuing um, their dreams and their careers. Um, what's really, I think, the most frightening about these bills is that they really don't ever come with any sort of, um, you know, additional commitments to comprehensive sex ed and birth control so that people can prevent unintended pregnancy. Um, and it, what Suzanne was saying, and I think that what's really important is that, you know, people, off, I'm not, I, I don't consider myself the younger generation anymore, mm -hmm. but I know that um, that even I, I mean, I've never lived in a, in a, in a pre-row world, right? And so we think that these that this reality is so far in our rearview mirror that we're never going to see it again and i think that hearing from women and people who lived 
um, pre-row. I mean, I know the stories of the people in my own family. I hear the stories every day from our supporters um, and our members who come to me and talk to me about what it was like pre-row. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that it wasn't just that abortion was illegal, it was that the fear that an unintended pregnancy could derail one's life so completely. And frankly, the shame and the stigma around abortion permeated everything from, like Suzanne was saying, from sex to knowledge of one's own body um, to childbearing. I mean, adoption was shrouded in secrecy and mm-hmm. was really shameful. Um, and so it's it's really not just however one feels about abortion. I think that the time to be scared is now because it's not just abortion on the line. It's really our our society's entire view of how women can and should be um, participants in their own humanity. And um, it feels really scary that if we lose abortion, I think, again, the domino effect of that is that women don't have the opportunities to be whole people, as Suzanne was saying. Um, and that prospect, I'm a mom, I have two daughters, um, I care about I, I care about them, I care about everybody else um, who's coming up after us, and that prospect is really, really scary. Well, and, and really, control over one's life really begins with control over one's body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? And it's really hard to plan for a future if, if you're not entirely sure if you're going to have to carry a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, if you are heterosexually active, uh, you know, birth control fails. Mm-hmm. Um, all birth control can fail. Mm-hmm. And I, again, in my time of working at uh, a, an abortion providing clinic, I talked with, I, I've talked with a woman who had a tubal ligation, uh, which failed, you know, some years later. And people are like, well, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. It does mm-hmm. happen, right? There is no 100% effective birth control. And so when you have no idea, you know, if what's, what's going to happen, especially as a young woman, uh, how can you adequately plan for your life? Mm-hmm. How can you? Uh, so again, I invite your calls. Please do uh, call in with your comments, with your questions, with your stories at 503-231-8187. And let's talk to Carrie. Good morning, Carrie. You're on the air. Well, hi, Ani. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm really delighted with your topic. There's, a, there's something I've been troubled about for some time. I used to be in Berkeley, and we used to defend the, uh, you know, the, the places that needed defending. Mm-hmm. In any, in any event, what I want to say is these laws that are being pushed through are by old white men. They are afraid that they're dying off in droves, which indeed they are. They are not only, you know, worried about their kind coming, you know, <laughs> into higher numbers, but they're also racist. They know that black people have a harder time than anybody else on earth getting anything, let alone the women. They know it's going to, you know, be okay for every wealthy white woman to get an abortion anytime she wants, regardless of what laws they put into effect. These men, that's mm-hmm. who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Why does no one ever say, stop white men from doing this? I mean, why does why, why? do yeah. husbands why don't husbands go out in the street and start marching for us? You know, why are they so passive? Mm-hmm. Because they're they've been fed into this whole white thing. You know, we know that there's like what twenty two, um, twenty two uh, army uh, retirees or whatever that kill themselves every day. There's suicide amongst white reservists all the time. They're dying off. <laughs> I mean, there are more women everywhere anyway. Why are we allowing all this to happen? We're in the numbers. You know, women are in the majority here. We're not the minority here. Yeah, fair question, Gary. Thanks very much. Uh, well, I'd like that. I'd like you guys to discuss that yeah. a little bit. Why is this happening, you know, when we're at the higher numbers? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a really important point to make. And I think that recognizing that um, old white men are, are by and large the ones who are making these laws is absolutely correct. I mean, one of the things that we know here in Oregon is that because we are a state with the highest level of women in leadership positions in government, we do pass laws like the Reproductive Health Equity Act that show that we understand and care about um, women's reproductive lives and reproductive health in general. The other thing, though, that I would make the point about, I mean, 
is that white women, frankly, are complicit in this as well. Mm-hmm. So we know that the majority of white women, um, 53% voted for Trump. We know that um, the governor of Alabama, who is an older white woman, is the one who signed this bill into law. Um, and absolutely, um, the people who are by and large harmed by these laws are young women and are women of color. We need to be listening to um, to their voices as leaders in this movement. Um, I am really proud that NARAL is part of um, is, uh, coalitions that include groups like All Above All, which at the federal level fights to um, end the Hyde Amendment. We work in coalition um, with a broad range of racial justice and gender justice groups here in Oregon to make sure that um, it's not old white men who are making these laws, but it's not just white women either, um, and that we are part of a movement that is inclusive and centers the people who are most impacted um, and harmed by uh, these really dangerous laws, and frankly are often forgotten even when we pass really proactive legislation. And so we in Oregon have really been trying to make right on passing laws that impact those who are most vulnerable, who are most in need of health, you know, of access to reproductive health care services, and that we listen to their stories and um, cultivate and celebrate leadership um, within communities of, uh, of young women, of women of color, and of um, communities of color. Absolutely. Um, 503-231-8187 is the number to call. Please do join us on the air. I'm Ani. I'm here with Grayson Dempsey. She is the executive director of Oregon NARAL. Uh, we are here for about another 25 minutes or so, and uh, we would love to hear from you. 503-231-8187. Again, to remind you, you can uh, keep in touch with Positively Revolting throughout the week on Facebook. Uh, you can like our page there. You can also follow along in the Twitterverse at Positive Revolt. I wanted to uh, maybe talk a little bit about, uh, there was an interesting statistic. Back when I was a clinic worker, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre, Deirdre English put out these uh, great little pamphlets on women's health care, on uh, restrictive attitudes around women and misogyny, Uh, And one of the pamphlets cited a study that uh, has always stuck in my head, and it was basically that as many women in the anti-choice movement had abortions, Mm -hmm. accessed abortions when needed, as women who were pro-choice, that when, when reality happens to you, your rhetoric might go out the window. And this really struck me uh, as a clinic worker because so many times I would talk with women uh, one-on-one, either before or after uh, they had had an abortion. And, and I, would, I would hear from them, well, this is okay for them because they took precautions, because uh, they were married, because uh, there were these certain things and they would justify it anyway, you know, I mean, it really wouldn't necessarily make any sense to me, and I really didn't care. Because again, any woman who wants access to an abortion should have one. But to see these women tie themselves in logical knots, saying that they were okay, they hadn't done anything wrong, these other women they're sitting with, though, hmm, it was mind-blowing to Mm -hmm. me each and every time. Yeah. Yeah, um, so my background is also working in clinics, um, and... We, you know, the reality is, is that um, that nobody there's there's not one type of woman who has an abortion. Right. Abortion crosses, um, it crosses religious lines, it crosses political affiliation. Um, oftentimes, the I mean, the largest number statistically of women who have abortions um, identify as Christian or Catholic, and we know that often that's because they are part of religions that don't talk about or um, condone birth control, and so unintended pregnancy is more likely to happen. I mean, when I was working in clinics, there was really a push to not just say, you know, women would come in and she'd she'd say, um, I need this abortion today, but for all the reasons you said, I am better than the other women who are sitting in in that lobby, or I'm going to identify as pro-life, but my situation is different. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had women come into our clinics who were picketing on, you know, picketing outside them, and then we're back picketing a week later. And, you know, for a long time in clinics, we really did feel like every woman had the right to to access the healthcare services she needed, and so we wouldn't push back. And there came a time for me in clinics where I needed to say, I worry about your, I worry about you being part of a political movement that is trying to outlaw the very service that you are seeking. And it really came from a place of like the disconnect around Mm -hmm. that, which I think a lot of women in this country are in because we know that one in um, three women, one in 
three American women will have an abortion in their lifetime. If every woman who had had an abortion and every partner who had supported them and every person who loved them said, we're absolutely not going to tolerate this, this issue would be done. Mm -hmm. But women who've had abortions, I think, often continue to carry the shame and the stigma that we have put on them for so many years. They continue to, you know, if you're raised in a political movement that says abortion is murder, and then you find yourself in a position of needing an abortion, it is a big crisis of faith to wrap your brain around the fact that all of this all of this messaging you've heard your whole life isn't true and in fact you are just like all of those other women who are seeking abortions because those other women seeking abortions are our friends and our mothers and our sisters and our neighbors they are not an island of women who do vicious things mm-hmm. and don't care about children um they are they they are around us and among us and everybody loves someone who's had an abortion but you can imagine that people really can compartmentalize and i think that our movement has allowed people to compartmentalize and that we even as a movement have often shied away from talking about abortion. We've do, we've used euphemisms like choice. Mm-hmm. Um, we have said, you know, things like safe, legal and rare. We have, um, you know, sh- not necessarily always um, embraced our abortion providers, but we have allowed them to sort of be on the fringes of the movement. And so I think that it is really important that we not only um, destigmatize abortion for the women who've had them, but for the people who provide that care and bring all of those people into our movement to normalize um, this as as a as an sometimes common life occurrence, and to say abortion is healthcare. I mean, and and everybody who needs healthcare should be able to access it in a way that is dignified, safe, legal, and accessible. Nicely, nicely <laughs> said, Grayson. Five zero three two three one eight one eight seven. The number to call. And good morning to Cheryl. You are on the air. Good to have a representative from NARAL this morning. I have two comments that I want to make, and the first is this. I believe that NARAL, who is the umbrella uh, organization for the movement for abortion, basically, is using the wrong connotation, and that is this. We always hear, she got pregnant, I got pregnant, rather than the very important phrase, and that is this. She was impregnated. It didn't happen out of the air. It happened because a man was there and did this as a team together, whether it was rape, whether it was consensual. It's how it happens. And I do believe if we would continue to use the phrase, she was impregnated, rather than I got pregnant, she was pregnated, it, it will change all of the thinking. The second comment I have is about shame. I cannot think of a circumstance other than perhaps murder where men are associated with the term shame. Women throughout history have been associated with the word shame. Women have to take the responsibility. It was a shameful thing she did, so on and so on. I'm sure that every woman can relate to this. It is something that follows us from the beginning of our lives to the end. It's time it stopped. We've got to make the men responsible for what they do. They walk away. They spend the, the time it takes to impregnate a woman, and many are gone. Not all men. I'm not making a blanket statement mm-hmm. here, but I am indicating that men are never brought into the conversation. The other two guests you had on this morning who made comments, each of them alluded to this, but it was not strongly mm-hmm. emphasized. Men must step up. Women are not shameful creatures. Women are providers. We work ourselves frequently beyond our capacity with our family. We worry about the children that we do have. We take care of them. It is time for men to be in this equation. Every time NARAL does not include them, you are missing the point. Every bit of the conversation this morning has been placed on the woman over and over. Men, step up. And that's my comments for this morning. All right. Thanks very much, Cheryl. So um, I really appreciate your passion for this issue, Cheryl, and I really appreciate your comments. Um, we really do need to involve men in this movement. And frankly, we need to get even get away from the binaries of men and women, um, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, people get pregnant um, 
And we, we, we need to talk about that as it happens across the gender spectrum. Um, one of the things that I will say that I think has been a misstep, though, of NARAL in decades past is that um, there was polling that was done in the 90s that showed that people trusted women more with every person you brought into the equation. So if you said a woman and her doctor, a woman and her family, a woman and her God, that people were like, well, women aren't totally trustworthy, but as long as she's got her God and her doctor and her family there helping her make that decision, like, okay, we can vote for this law. Um, and so it became really common in pro-choice, you know, uh, vocabulary and communications to say things like a woman and her doctor, a woman and her provider. Right. Um, we have we have intentionally brought it back to women in some ways because um, we have wanted. I mean, I think that the term "got impregnated" um, for me when I think about that um, feels like it takes away some agency from women as um, as 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 not all the time certainly, but as as. Um, often um, active and joy- joyful participants um, in in their sexuality. And so um, I do think it's important to talk about all of the ways in which women often don't have agency in making decisions about sex, but that we are also um, giving women agency when we say it is, it's women's bodies. We say it's women's ability to make choices about their body. It's women's lives. Certainly men... Um, you know, often are and should be part of that equation. But frankly, the reality is, is sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so women are not only making decisions. I actually don't even use language that's just my body, my choice, because I think that when you're deciding about whether or not to bring a child into the world, you're not thinking about your body per se. I think often you're thinking about your life and the resources you have and the path that you're on and your dreams and your Mm -hmm. hopes and your desire to be a mother or not be a mother or raise the children you have or you know and so I like to talk about women's lives and how um, we need to be the ultimate deciders and certainly if we choose um, to involve our our doctor and our god and our family and our partners and our husbands and our uh, you know in in those decisions that that's really important Um, but if we also just choose to make that decision on our own that that's part of our fundamental human right as well um, so, you know, Cheryl, I do think I just want to say, I think that I've gotten a lot of, I've had a lot of discussions about the language you use and how powerful it is. People, some people prefer to say anti-choice. I prefer to say anti-abortion, put that word out there in the room. Um, some people want to say, you know, it sounds like, you know, got pregnant versus was impregnated. Um, I think that ma- messaging is powerful. I think mm-hmm. these are conversations we can continue to have as a movement. And I just want to say, I really, um, again, appreciate your passion um, for this issue. And thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We have, oh, just over 10 minutes, so let's uh, go ahead and get as many folks on as we can. Uh, Let's talk to Harry. Good morning, Harry. You're on the air. Oh, greetings, everyone, and thank you for taking my call. I think all the legislation from the southern states is is actually a backlash for the, uh, the, the abortion laws in New York State that they passed recently. And also the, uh, uh, the movie about the abortion clinic in Philadelphia and its conditions it was found in. Also, the, um, um, also why it's passing in the southern states is uh, for the last several years, they've been going, um, these anti-abortion groups have been going to the black churches and asking them, you know, your opinion and, you know, making them take a stand. And majority of them are, are uh, are saying are going anti-abortion, so they're either voting, you know, against abortion, I'm gonna, or they're not staying home. I'm gonna, I'm, so, um, and, I'm gonna uh, jump in for a minute, Harry, and first of all, say it's not just the southern states that are actually passing restrictive abortion laws. So it's it's important to actually look at the fact that this is a national movement. Uh huh. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, but uh, both sides. Uh, how many states actually? Um, uh, approve uh, uh, like the Alabama states are completely against it, and how much? How many of are four of the fifty states? Well, so one thing I want to say: so these lar- these these bans are passing largely in southern states, um, but I will also say I I really want to make it clear that. Um, it actually it has been largely the African-American community and African-American women who have consistently voted Democratic, who brought Doug Jones into office. Um, so I do think that churches have a lot to do um, with anti-abortion lawmaking, but that the black community specifically um, has pretty consistently um, been um, Democratic and pro-choice. And, and like I mentioned earlier, I think that the people that we're seeing 
um, introduce these laws, sign these laws, and pass these laws are largely white evangelicals. I think that the idea that it, this is in response to the law in New York, I mean, I, I there has been a lot of emotion that was stirred up um, and good base building that was done by the anti-abortion movement around uh, the reproductive um, Health Act in New York, and and that's unfortunate. I mean, what's hard for me is that the bill in New York that was passed was really meant to protect women who are the most vulnerable in terms of health care, who had the most tragic outcomes, who were needing abortions later in pregnancy due to really the most extreme circumstances. And it's and it's frankly disgusting to me that the anti-abortion movement has been so successful at spinning those stories into. Um, lies that they continue to perpetuate that make people so uncomfortable with abortion that they feel like it's appropriate to ban it for all women. So I don't disagree that that a lot of these laws are being stirred up um, in this reactionary way to good pro-choice legislation that's been passed. Um, but it is unfortunate that um, you know so much of those laws that are being passed by the anti-abortion movement are are frankly um, predicated on these sort of false notions of, of of who the women are who have abortions and why yeah, they get them. Absolutely. Um, let's go ahead and talk to Judy. Good morning, Judy. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I I wanted to make a comment regarding the language that's used, and I've appreciated listening to you all this morning. Um, for the most part, you have said anti-abortion groups rather than pro-life. Yeah. And the pro-life, I think, <clears throat> is such a misnomer. Mm-hmm. And I hear that group of people being referred that way so much in news media, and so um, I think there needs to be a concerted effort to take that lingo out. Thank you. Absolutely. I totally also agree, and I've, uh, myself and, and Teresa, who is the host of Press Watch and my beloved partner, uh, Teresa started using the term forced birther mm-hmm. a few years ago, <laughs> and I have uh, I have readily taken that up. I do like the forced birther term. Um, I, I agree with you, and like I said, I use anti-abortion. I think it's important for us to put the word abortion yeah. into the room. I think that choice has become a word that is often so commodified. I mean, I, I'll get things in the mail that will say, do you, are, do you believe in choice? And I'm like, I do, and then I'll open it up, and it's like a new bank application or something. Right. Um, and so I, I use the word abortion. The only time I use pro-life and, and, and you have used it in this context is when I do, um, when I was talking about being a clinic worker and talking about women and how they self-identify. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and when I have been in clinics and hear women use that language, it's important to me that I don't correct them, but I do dig underneath that a little bit. Um, I really make sure that people understand that no matter how you feel about abortion, if you subscribe to the quote unquote pro-life movement, you are part of a political movement that is looking to outlaw abortion. And so people will say things like, I'm pro-life for myself but I'm pro-choice for others. And I'm like, then you're pro-choice because that's what being pro-choice is. Um, and so recognizing that that the movement to outlaw abortion is not about how one individually feels about abortion. It is about whether or not we believe that the government has the right to legislate what women do with their bodies and their lives. And I think when you put it that way, a lot of people will also recognize that that is not a movement they want to be part of. Absolutely. <clears throat> with uh, about seven minutes to go, two more people on hold. Let's see what we can do. Good morning, Eve. You're on Hi. Here. Hi. Uh, my name is Deanna, and um, there was a lady that was on a, a few people back that was talking about the words that are used and how shame is used, yeah. and uh, women are caused to feel like they got pregnant, you know, like all by themselves. And I think that it's a uh, it's, it's really good that people are bringing up about the language that's used because mm-hmm. in the medical field, uh, the word abortion is used for any kind of pregnancy that ends, whether it's a miscarriage or a stillbirth or no matter what it is, the pregnancy was aborted. Right. So it really makes it, because the medical field writes it that way, it makes it dangerous for all women. It can it can uh, stereotype any woman as a person that maybe shouldn't have children because she doesn't value life. I'm not sure I'm following. I'm saying it's just like they use the word abortion in the medical field. Right, abortion like is a they, medical, it's a, it's a medical term. Right, so, but it's also used like in aviation, when they abort a mission, uh-huh. when they end a mission, when uh-huh. they end a pregnancy, when a pregnancy sure. ends. No matter whether you go in for an abortion or whether there's a medical need that the pregnancy be ended either to save the mother's life or whatever it's called 
their pregnancy was aborted. It's yes. called that no matter what it was. Yeah, miscarriages are spontaneous abortions, for example. Yeah, right. Right. Well, so when people look up people's medical records, or if people do background check, I don't know how far they go. They're probably not supposed to give out that kind of information, but people have access to information and get access to information. And depending on how things are written up and the words that are used, um, people can draw assumptions. And I doubt that there are very many women, period, that want <laughs> the word want to get an abortion. You know, uh, there's a whole lot of emotions involved around that issue, period. Mm -hmm. Huh? So I hear what you're saying. I think that actually, um, so I will just tell a story, which is that the Reproductive Health Equity Act is, now covers abortion um, with zero out of pocket um, from the um, from from the woman, from the patient, from the person who's covered, um, which is amazing. Um, we recently at NARAL got our new healthcare um, statements, um, and it said it had a little addendum that said, um, due to House Bill 3391, um, you know this service will now be covered, and we all sort of cheered, except that the word that they used was interrupted pregnancy services and I was we all had a moment of being like what are they talking about um and what's I actually think the opposite of what you think which is that um by trying to not use the word abortion I think we continue to stigmatize and and um marginalize abortion so um I think that you know just like um Ani was saying women come in and they think well I'm having I'm I'm having an abortion because my pregnancy um you know, didn't go as intended. Perhaps there's um, a medical reason um, that a woman needs an abortion. And I think separating those women out from women who have abortions because they don't want to be pregnant at this time or because uh, for whatever million reasons they have an abortion mm -hmm. actually continues to divide us into sort of good abortions and mm -hmm. bad abortions. And I think that the reality is, is that, um, you know, when we can normalize and say, that the ending of a pregnancy is going to perhaps happen for many, many reasons. And when we can say the word abortion without shame and stigma, I think that's when we actually start to bring abortion into the healthcare, the full healthcare system, um, and 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 not ask women the reasons that they are seeking this procedure in order to feel like they need to justify or um, or um, explain why they're um, why they're terminating a pregnancy, but to say, you know. There are so many reasons that women um, need to need to seek abortion care, or um, there are so many ways that a pregnancy can go. And we, you know, we honor and we honor all women and their decisions, and also again believe that every woman deserves safe care and dignified care, no matter what. So, um, if you see in your health care, I mean, when you asked earlier, Ani, about what we can do, um, we can vote, but we can also do little things like calling our health care provider and saying, "I don't know what an interrupted pregnancy service is. Can you call this abortion coverage in your statement of benefits so that women right. know what's actually what what what's actually available to them?" Those are small acts of resistance that I think are also really important. They add up, those small acts of resistance, <laughs> I tell you. We have only two minutes left, and the hour has flown by like I knew it would. I want to leave people with uh, a little bit more of about what's in the future, Grayson. Uh, so what is Oregon NARAL working on, and how can people get involved? So I know we only have two minutes, so I'm going to be quick. Um, we are, are planning a, na a rally um, in solidarity with the National Day to Stop Abortion Bans, Tuesday, May 21st from 12 to 1. It's going to be in downtown Portland. Location and details, TBD. We just decided to do this yesterday. Please follow us on Facebook at NARAL Pro Choice Oregon to get information about that. We would love to see you all there. Um, the other thing that we're working on right now that's really important is we're working on school board races. And some people don't understand why, but I'll tell you that the need for comprehensive sex education and reproductive health care access for students is really where we start to teach, you know, start to teach young people that their bodies matter, that their lives matter. We teach them about consent. We teach them about sexual assault. We teach them about or preventing sexual assault. We teach them um, about, uh, you know, we, we teach curriculum that affirms their gender and their sexuality. Um, these issues are just as controversial as abortion and making sure that we have champions on the school board who care about students having ac um, access to medically accurate education is really, really important. 10%, uh, fewer than 10% of people have turned in their ballots. We have a special election for school board coming up on May 21st. NARAL has endorsed candidates throughout the state. I'd love if you go to prochoiceoregon.org and find out who we've endorsed and how you can vote. Those are little ways just this week that you can get involved. And again, if you follow us on Facebook, sign up for our newsletter. Um, we're doing all kinds of exciting things um, coming up to really stand up and defend reproductive freedom. And we'd love to have all of you be a part of it. 
Grayson Dempsey, thank you so very much for joining us this morning on Positively Revolting here on KBOO, your community radio station. Uh, stay tuned. At 9 o'clock, Marvin comes on with Vets Veterans Voice. And uh, stay tuned to KBOO all day long. Thank you again, Grayson. Thank you, and thanks to everyone who called. I really appreciated talking to you. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of a discussion entitled Islamophobia and White Nationalism in Oregon and the World on Tuesday, May 28th at 7 p.m. at the Oregon Historical Society in Portland. In Oregon, as in other places, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia have intersected to perpetuate white supremacist and white nationalist ideology. This panel discussion will explain those connections and will offer tools that individuals and communities can employ to help stop the spread of hate culture. Again, that is a discussion on Islamophobia and white nationalism in Oregon and the world on Tuesday, May 28th at 7 p.m. at the Oregon Historical Society, 1200 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning, it's 8.59 and you're tuned to KBOO Portland. Coming right up, it's Veterans Voice Radio today. Uh, uh, Marvin's ready to maybe take your calls at the mid-break. And then at 10 o'clock, it's Radio Zine featuring an interview with Give Us Shelter, a group that's walking to Salem and and uh, from Portland to uh, discuss housing justice. At 10.30, Film at 11 welcomes cinematography, cinematographer Eric Edwards to discuss J.T. Leroy. And at 11 o'clock, Pacific Underground will be here having a discussion about Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by members' support, if you didn't know. And you can become a member. You go to kboo.fm on the web or use our mobile app and click on Donate. Thanks for taking care of that. And here comes Veterans Voice. Well, how'd you do, Private Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside? And I'll rest for a while in the warm summer sun. I've been walking all day, Lord, and I'm nearly done. And I see by your gravestone you were only nineteen when you joined the glorious fallen in 1916. Well, I hope you died quick and I hope you died clean. Or Willie McBride, 